Well, as we come to the Word of God this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. O glorious Father, we do bow before you and your majesty this morning. We do not deserve to stand in your presence or to address you, and yet we know because of Jesus we can. And so we thank you for the sacrifice that he paid so that we might be accepted before you. And now as we open your word, Father, we want to learn from you. We want to see you in your word. And so I pray that you would please put distractions aside. You would cause our hearts to not be hardened against your truth, but may you soften our hearts that we might receive the words of life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are certainly living in challenging times for the church of Jesus Christ. As our society continues to seek to live life on its own, apart from God's word and God's standard, we will continue to see it opposed to the Lord and to his word. This world continues to drink the acid of self autonomy of self-fulfillment, of self-actualization, believing that they are in charge of their lives. But as they do this, they continue to mark themselves as opposed to, the, to God and to His Son. And so we find ourselves, Christians, in 2021, facing a war for the truth of God and a war for the glory of God. And much of the energies of Christians today are directed to this war, towards waging this war. And yet, in the midst of this battle, it's possible for us who are standing for truth to get our priorities off. We can begin to find our identity as a people, as a person in the fight. We find our drive for existence as a church toward our energies towards the next front of the battle that arises. And we're vigilant looking for where we need to fight next. But here's the thing. In the midst of fighting this battle, we can lose sight of the main thing. We can lose sight of the worship of the Lord. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis gives this caution that I thought was so helpful. He says this, We can always dredge up more adrenaline because of the latest moral or ethical or social or cultural or political emergency. Crises may stimulate us to action, but they do not sustain life. The church must never look to the latest cause for her life. We cannot ignore the enemies outside the city of God, but we must not be absorbed by them. War must not efface worship. The real question is not who is against us, but who is among us. Helpful words. And so I believe that we need a renewed sense of who God is, of the God who dwells among us. We need to increase our knowledge of God and our love for God. This is the need of the hour. 
We need to keep the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the center of our hearts, the center of our lives, and the center of our church. And so we're going to get a view together of that God. A God that we cannot see. But it's a God that stands exalted high over all. My title this morning, The Towering Stature of the Unseen King, I've borrowed from a line from commentator Derek Kidner, and I thought it so poetically captures this reality of a great God that we worship and that we need to fall down before. Now, before we turn to Psalm 24, I want to direct us to 2 Samuel chapter 6. A little bit of a, of a curveball here, but if you wouldn't mind opening your personal copy of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6. The reason we're turning here is that I believe that this is the historical circumstances standing behind the Psalm 24 that we're going to be looking at this morning. The Psalm itself doesn't tell us what took place or what prompted the psalm to be written. But as we look at the historical circumstances found in the Old Testament, this seems to best fit the circumstances. And what's taking place in 2 Samuel 6 is that David is king over Israel, and as he has defeated his enemies and brought about peace, he now wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. He wants to make sure that the worship of Yahweh is at the center of the nation. And so he is bringing the ark of God to the city of David, to Jerusalem. And so follow along as I read. I'm going to read 2 Samuel 6, verses 1 through 15. It says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baalah Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ohio the, went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And they came up to the threshing floor of Nacon, and Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom, and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went up and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. 
So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. I believe that in the three months that the ark of the Lord was at the house of Obed-Edom, David very well could have penned Psalm 24. As they were seeking to bring the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem and bring it to the, the center point of the nation, there was this, this uh, horrible event in which Uzzah reached out to, to touch the Ark and he fell down dead because he did not honor the holiness of the Lord that was represented by the Ark. And so everything came to a halt, and, and David had to put the Ark of the Covenant, stash it somewhere else, and, and wasn't ready to bring it up. And this caused him to reflect upon himself, upon the nation, and what they needed to hear, what they needed to reflect on, what they needed to know about their God as they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant to the center of the city. They needed to be reminded of God's sovereignty. They needed to be reminded of God's holiness and his requirements for his people to be holy. They need to be reminded of God's grandeur. And so he put this, I believe, down into what we have as Psalm 24. And I invite you to turn there now to Psalm 24. So we'll begin by reading this psalm. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. This psalm is going to reveal to us three attributes of God, three attributes of this unseen King which will demand our worshipful response. If God is this way, if he's characterized in this way, then we must worship him. So let's begin by looking upon our God, by seeing the first attribute, and that is his complete sovereignty. His complete sovereignty. And we see this in verses one and two. David begins this psalm with a bold declaration. Look at it, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He just comes out and asserts that the earth belongs to the Lord. Everything on the earth is Yahweh's. In fact, Yahweh is the first word of this psalm. It's placed emphatically at the start. 
Yahweh owns the earth. Now, our English Bibles have not translated Yahweh as Yahweh for a number of reasons that I won't get into this morning, but they indicate to us when this divine name is used by using the small caps word for Lord. So you'll find throughout the Old Testament, Lord written with a capital L and then lowercase, and that's signifying one name for God. But when it's capital L and then uh, small caps O-R-D, that's indicating that the name Yahweh is there in the Hebrew text. Yahweh was the name revealed to Moses at the burning bush. It's his name. Lord is a title, but Yahweh is a name. In prior centuries, scholars used the name Jehovah, and you've no doubt heard that as well. Another attempt to to define what this name of the Lord is. I believe Yahweh is the more accurate rendition. But the point here is that David declares emphatically and confesses that the earth belongs to this God, to Yahweh. And it's not just that, that God built this stage and then he walked away and let mankind run about and kind of own the place and as the drama of history plays out. David says that the fullness of the earth is Yahweh's. In other words, God didn't just build the house and own the house. He owns everything in the house. He owns it all, the fullness of the earth. What is the fullness? Well, it's everything that's upon this earth. It's wealth and it's resources and it's people. The people of this earth belong to God. He has complete ownership upon this earth. Look at the second phrase of verse 1. It says, the world and those who dwell therein. Just in case you think that this only speaks about God owning nature and the physical world, trees and, and water and all that, he makes sure that we know that this includes humans. This includes people. Those who dwell therein belong to Yahweh. Genesis 1 is clear that Yahweh spoke this world into existence and everything came to be. He established the land upon which we walk. He created it, so he owns it. This is a fundamental principle that we recognize as his image bearers, right? You make something, you own it. If you build something, you own it. An inventor invents something, he owns that idea. He owns that gadget. Creation indicates ownership. Now, because of sin, humanity walks upon this earth thinking that they own everything. We think that we are in charge. We think that we are the ones that rule this place. We act like kings. But friends, there's only one king. It's Yahweh. He's king of this earth. And I believe that if we are to uh, apply this psalm to us today, we need to Confess what David here confesses. These words need to be upon our lips as well. Our hearts need to overflow with a declaration that this earth belongs to the Lord. We must not only have this truth upon our lips, though, we need to have this truth granted in our hearts. This is to be the bedrock of how we live. We base our lives upon the fact that God owns this earth. And why does he have ownership? It's because 
Verse 2, right? He founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. This poetic language to describe his creation of the dry land out of the sea. God is sovereign over this entire universe. He's the ruler in charge of each and every one of us. You are not the king of your life. God is. And we get that from Psalm 24, 1, among other verses. And so what must we do with the God who owns us, who created us? We must submit ourselves to him. Happily come under his lordship, his loving rulership over our lives. But you see, the fundamental problem with humanity is that we've thrown off God as ruler. We don't want anyone telling us what to do, especially not this unseen God who claims to have made us. We don't want to submit. And so we sin by trying to live life our own way without God. But friends, this is where the gospel comes in because this God sent his only son to reconcile us back to himself. And all those then who have professed faith in Jesus Christ will make the same confession with David and be able to boldly and happily declare the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We happily want it this way. We don't want it any other way. We're not going kicking and screaming saying, oh, I guess this earth belongs to the Lord. No, we say, yes, we don't want anyone else to own this earth. We want only the good and wise and perfect God to be the one who sits upon the throne of this world. Friends, too often Christians can talk about God as if he is some sort of provincial deity, as if he's just over a small little area of our lives that we call our spiritual lives. But this verse kicks down the door on that and realize God is not contained within any sort of walls that we create. God is God over all. Everything that we do, everything upon this earth relates to Yahweh. Your job, your relationships, how you live, everything you do in your daily life relates to God because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so everything we do, we've got to relate back to him. And let me just say as a point of application here to all of you who are students, children who are in school, and those even in advanced degrees, you are in school because you're learning about Yahweh's world, the one who owns all of this. You're not learning about a secular universe brought about by chance in billions of years. You're living in a world handcrafted by Yahweh. It's a theological universe, not a secular universe. The joy of learning is investigating all that he has made here for us to enjoy. We study languages and grammar because God first spoke to bring this universe into existence, and we bear his image, so we speak languages too. As we study mathematics, we learn about a universe that is ordered and predictable because Yahweh is the steady constant that holds this world together. And speaking of predictability, you can't do science without predictability. You need to come back to the lab tomorrow and do the same thing that you did today. And you can't 
do that if this world is based upon randomness and chance. But we have a steady God fixed in the heavens that owns us all. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. And that's why, students, you are devoting years of your life to learning about God's world, to study what he has made and seek to live rightly in it. And parents, may I say, we need to be teaching our children to think this way about the world, to think this way about life. This verse, Psalm 24, verse 1, should be part of the cornerstone of our parenting as we tell our children how to live life in this world. So, church, we must live with a God and trance vision of all things. To have a theological mindset about all of life and all of this world. This is the foundation stone of the Christian worldview. And so this is how we must live. So that's the first attribute that this psalm gives us about our God, this unseen king, his complete sovereignty. But let's look at the second attribute that this psalm gives us in verses three through six, and that is his perfect holiness. His perfect holiness, verses three through six. This psalm takes a turn in verse three by asking two questions. Look at them in verse three. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Now, in the Old Testament, the hill or mountain of the Lord refers to the place where the sanctuary was. Ever since Mount Sinai in the wilderness, God's presence was associated with a mountain. Even after David, his son Solomon would build the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And so here, David is speaking about approaching the worship of God. Essentially, he's asking, who can worship the Lord? Who can worship Yahweh? Who's qualified to do that? And not just who can initially approach, but who can stay? Who can linger in the presence of God? But why would he ask such a question? Why even, why even ask this? The key is what we see at the end of verse 3, that it's his holy place. It's his holy place. Why is this hill of the Lord, why is this place holy? It's because God is holy. Because the God who dwells there, the God that we are approaching, is a God of holiness. His holiness is clearly expressed throughout the scriptures. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, the seraphim call out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Throughout the Old Testament, he's called the Holy One of Israel 31 times. In Leviticus 11, 44 to 45, he says, I am Yahweh your God, I am holy. This is just a sampling that is clear throughout the scriptures that God is a holy God. But then it prompts us to ask, well, what does it mean that God's holy? That sounds great. It sounds like spiritual, religious, churchy language, but what does holy mean? Well, we're going to let the late Dr. R.C. Sproul help us here. He says, number one, primarily God's holiness refers to his greatness and his transcendence, to the fact that he is above and beyond anything in the universe. But secondarily, the word, uh, God, second, the word holy, as it is applied to God, refers to his purity, his absolute moral and ethical excellence. In other words, God is the best being that ever is and ever existed. And so the use of holy here in Psalm 24 pulls on both of these aspects, but I believe 
leans heavily on the second, the aspect of God's moral purity. And so, being so pure and excellent, so holy, God hates sin because sin is contrary to his nature. He can't be indifferent about sin. He hates it. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 says, You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. The Puritan Stephen Charnock, who wrote multiple volumes on the attributes of God, wrote this. He said, He is impatient of beholding sin. The very sight of it affects him with detestation. He hates the first spark of it in the imagination. We allow a lot of sin to go. There's things, sin that can, and wickedness and evil that can rile us up. But see, God can't even allow the first spark of it. And here's the problem with you and I. We are not holy. God is holy. We are not holy. In other words, we are marked by the very thing that God detests. We have sin. Sin is like a cancer from which we cannot cure ourselves. Sin is this cancer that stems from our rebellion against God. We have all transgressed and disobeyed His divine law. In fact, we come out of the womb broken and crooked and fallen. We do not naturally do what is right. We naturally do what is wrong. You don't have to teach a child to do something that's wrong. They very naturally are selfish and go against God's law. Therefore, every single human is fallen and sinful in God's eyes. And that's why this question of verse 3 is so significant. Who can stand before the holy God in one sense? No one, right? No one can stand. And this is what the psalmist of Psalm, the writer of Psalm 130 knew. He wrote, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? The implied answer is no one. If he were keeping a record, none of us would still be left. But David here doesn't answer his questions that way. He doesn't say, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? No one, right? He gives an answer. In other words, there's a category of people who are able to stand before the Lord. They are people that are not there because they are extra righteous and have achieved something on their own. These are people who have been transformed by God's grace. They have been saved. Let your eye glance down at verse 5, where it speaks, the end of the verse, about the God of his salvation. In other words, this person that can stand before the Lord has been saved by Yahweh, been saved by God. And so the qualities that are given in verse 4 are not prerequisites that must be achieved by a sinner in order for them to be accepted by God. They're not hoops that one must jump through to make God happy with you. They are not works by which you can earn your salvation. They are characteristics wrought by God in an individual, an individual that God has saved by his grace. So let's look at these qualities of one that God has saved and enabled him to stand before him. Verse 4 gives four characteristics. Four characteristics. First is clean hands. He who has clean hands. Clean hands here is representative of outward behavior. 
Notice it says clean hands and a pure heart. We're dealing with the external and we're dealing with the internal. He says that the one who stands before the Lord is one who's going to live a righteous life. Now, this doesn't speak to moral perfection. If the people who stand before him have never sinned ever, otherwise there would be no one. But even those saved by God continue to sin, but there's a change that's been brought about in their lives. The pattern of their life is one of righteousness and obedience, one in which seeks to follow God's law, seeks to live according to his word. We see this same requirement in the New Testament. Lest you think that this is just some sort of uh, holiness thing in the Old Testament, we have for us, and Paul writes in Titus chapter 2, verse 12, he says that Christians are to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Those who are God's people are called to live holy lives. And so when a sinner is transformed by God's grace, he will seek to live a life that is above reproach and free from the charge of immorality. Now we look at this and go, to have clean hands, to have righteous outward behavior, this is impossible. And in one sense it is in our flesh. But God intends for his people to look different from the world. He has this requirement because the world naturally lives pursuing wickedness, pursuing evil. But God wants his people to be those who have clean hands, who live different lives that walk to the beat of a different drum. Well, just in case that a hypocrite who has seemed to have cleaned up the outside of his life and seems to look good from the outside thinks that he's doing okay, okay, I can stand in God's presence, David gives the next characteristic. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. God isn't just interested in the externals. God is not just looking to see what we do on the outside, but God looks at the heart. His gaze is penetrating. Like an x-ray that can, that can look beyond the, the outward surface. He can see what goes on inside of us. And he says, not only are our outward actions supposed to be pure and clean, but are, so are our invisible thoughts. The intentions, the motivations of our hearts, the things that we think about that no one else sees, what goes on in our heads. You see, we are not only to treat people well and loving and have those clean hands, but we are to have good motives too. Because, you know, humanity is very capable of putting on a nice face and treating people nicely, and yet inside the thoughts towards that person are absolutely wretched. But for followers of Yahweh, God requires that we have clean hands and a pure heart. That our motives towards people must be true and pure. God knows the condition of our hearts. He knows whether our hearts are pure or whether we are entertaining all sorts of wickedness inside. Just in case there's somebody who says, oh yeah, I live a great life and I do nice things to people and oh yeah, I don't think evil of anybody. I'm, I'm pure on the inside. 
David then speaks to the spiritual allegiance of that person. Look at the third quality. He does not lift up his soul to what is false. He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift his soul up to what is false. False here translates a word that can mean vanity or emptiness, worthlessness. It refers to false gods, anything that is not Yahweh, anything that is not the one true God. Lifting up the soul, something that we don't typically talk that way, but it's this idea of, of offering up in allegiance, offering up in devotion and worship. And so David's saying that those who are saved by God and are accepted into his presence to worship him are those who are faithful to him and to him alone. They don't claim to do nice things and whatever, and yet their soul is devoted to something else. And yet, this is what mankind does all the time. John Calvin wrote that the heart of man is an idol factory. We're just cranking out idols. Boom, boom, boom. We just easily come up with things to worship, come up with things to, to adore, come up with things to be devoted to. We invent things to love, to delight in, to trust in. And of course, in other cultures and other times, statues and, and actual physical idols have been the temptation. In our day, in our culture, that isn't so much the temptation, but there are plenty of other idols, plenty of other things that we devote ourselves to and seek to find pleasure and delight from and, and orient our days and our lives and our decisions around pleasing this thing. It could be money, wealth. It could be sex, pleasure, comfort. It can be acceptance, affirmation. It could be glory, prestige, and power. These things that you just have to turn on the news or open up your news app and you can see examples of people serving these idols all through our culture. God desires worshipers who are people of integrity, people who are devoted to him and him alone, who do not lift up their souls to what is false. The fourth characteristic that David gives us here is End of verse 4, does not swear deceitfully. Does not swear deceitfully. A characteristic of one whom God saves and has been transformed by God's grace is that he will speak truthfully, to put it positively. Speak truthfully. This means that God's people must not take an oath with deceitful intent, seeking to deceive or to trick there should not be promises that are made. There should not be, be, be commitments that are made seeking to deceive. Deception and deceit are not to characterize God's people. We are to speak truth. Because why? Because God is a God of truth. We're standing in the holiness of God. We're seeking to follow Him, and He's the God of truth. We need to mimic that in our lives. Now, we can read verse 4, and we can get the impression that the only worshipers accepted in God's presence are those who have cleaned themselves up and managed to achieve a level of holiness. But as I said before, this could be nothing further from the truth. Their good works, the changed hearts, are evidence of the change that God has wrought in their lives. The great 
London preacher Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, saints do not ascend the hill of the Lord as givers, as if we had some sort of righteousness we could give to the Lord, but as receivers. And they do not wear their own merits, but a righteousness which they have received. Notice verse 5, that this person will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This blessing will come to their lives. Blessing will come to the lives of those who seek to follow the Lord and live obediently to him. And righteousness, this could be rendered justification from the God of his salvation. You see, the saints of God are justified by God. That means that they are declared righteous based upon their faith in him. Not because of their own merits, because of the loving grace of God. In other words, who do true worshipers of God, true saints, why rather, do these true saints display the character of the king? Because the king has shared his righteous and holy character with them. That's how they're able to display this. Now it's easy to look at the demands of verse 4 and feel like these high demands and feel like they're very law-given and there's no room for grace. But in verse 5, we see that these qualities are given by God's grace anyway. Spurgeon again said this. He says, grace is not obscured by God's demand for holiness, but is highly exalted as we see it decking the saints with jewels and clothing him in fair white linen, all this sumptuous array being a free gift of mercy. You see, this, the same God who calls to a high standard of holiness is the God who gives that holiness, gives that righteousness. So friends, today, how is it that you and I, as sinners, before the holiness of God, are able to receive this holy clothing of the king? Well, it's only because of the sacrifice of the king. It's only because Jesus, the Son of God, died upon the cross that you are able to be acceptable before him. This is what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 22. He says, in you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. It's only because of the death of Christ that we are able to be reconciled to God and able to be holy. Friends, because of your sin, God cannot look upon you. But because of the death of Christ, he stood in your place. He took the wrath that you deserved. So now you are treated as righteous. You're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You're holy. And now we seek to simply live up to, to live consistent with the holiness and righteousness that we've been given through Christ. And so it's only because of Jesus that we're able to ascend the holy hill. Only because of Jesus we're able to stand in the holy place and worship him truly. Verse 6, David says that all this describes the category of people. He says, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. This means that they desire to know the king. They desire to know God. They, they seek an audience with him. They want to know him better. They, they, they aren't satisfied with distant, periodic communication with God. They press in to know Yahweh and to delight in him. And the implication and the, the, the demand upon us is that we would be a part of that generation. 
that we would be included in that category of people who seek the face of God. And so I ask you, do you do that? Do you seek God's face through prayer? Do you cry out to Him? Do you spend time on your knees with an open Bible seeking to know the Lord? We must be among those who seek His face. We live in a world that rejects God and will not seek Him, but we who are among His people must be of that generation that seeks His face. And so as we look at the holiness of God here in these verses, we can thank and praise the Lord for any glimmers of holiness we see. Maybe you compare your life with 10 years ago and you see a lot of change. And you say, praise you, Lord, that you have wrought holiness in my life. That I'm living more faithfully today than I did then. All praise to you because you're the God of my salvation and you have brought about this change in my life and heart. He is mercifully producing his character in you. Do not let those evidences of grace slide away without praising him. But as we also look upon the character of God, look upon the holy standards that he has for us, it can also cause us to see lapses in our holiness, to see impurity in our lives. And let me just say, as we, if these standards cause you to, to, to recognize major blatant sin in your lives, do not turn away from that conviction, but allow that to turn you to this God of your salvation, the God of mercy, Repent of your sin. Confess Jesus as the only way to save you from that sin and you will find mercy and grace. You will find forgiveness and your slate wiped clean. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Not some of your unrighteousness, but all of it. Your record can be wiped clean because of the grace of God. So we've seen the need to respond to God's complete sovereignty, to his perfect holiness, and let's look thirdly, we need to respond to his glorious supremacy. His glorious supremacy in verses 12 through 15. Sorry, verses seven through 10, because there is no 12 through 15 in this. Well, verse seven, this, this, this psalm has three very distinct phases of it, as I'm sure you have already picked up. And so verse 7 moves us into a new phase. It's an obvious change in the text. And, and in these verses, 7 through 10, there's a repeated sequence that, that goes through twice. First is a call to open the gates for the king of glory. Then there's a question about who is this king of glory. And then there's an answer. Again, that sequence happens twice. And it's through this exchange that we are confronted with Yahweh, the glorious king who is the mighty warrior. And here we return to that scene of 2 Samuel 6, this idea of bringing the Ark of the Covenant up to the gates of Jerusalem to be entered into the city of David. And in 2 Samuel 6, verse 2, there's a unique description of the Ark of the Covenant there. It says that the Ark is the Ark of God, which is called by the name of Yahweh of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. In other words, this ark truly represents Yahweh himself. This is the presence of God here on earth in that time. And therefore, when David was bringing up the ark to Jerusalem, he imagined that it was as if Yahweh himself was entering through the gates of Jerusalem. And as this happens, he can't help 
but be in awe of the majesty of this God. David, at this time, may have been the king over Israel. He was the top dog in the nation. He could have directed people. He could have commanded people. But instead, in this psalm, and I believe at, on that day when they brought the Ark of the Covenant up, he was more like a priest. He was helping the people worship the Lord. He was showing them how they're to worship this holy God. He was a servant of Yahweh. And so as he leads the people to worship God, he uses this poetic device here in uh, verses 7 through 10 of personification. He personifies the physical objects of gates and doors, saying that they could take physical action as if they were a person. Look at what he says in verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. These gates and doors need to be lifted up. They need to be opened for one. And, and very well, he could be speaking of the fact that they need to be expanded. This God is so great. Yahweh is so majestic that these doors don't even fit. You need to just lift your heads up. You just need to open this wider in order for Yahweh to enter into the city. David wants the king of glory to come in. And so as they approach the city, you could imagine... Someone, the gatekeeper on the wall calling out, who is this king of glory that you want to come in? And David is happy to answer the question because he's eager to declare the greatness of Yahweh. Look at verse 8. Who is this king of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. mighty. Yahweh, strong, mighty in battle. Now, why could David say this? Why could he say that the Lord was strong and mighty, that he was mighty in battle? Well, there were many reasons. David had seen the Lord give him great deliverance in his own life. Remember, David was a man of war. He fought many battles against the Philistines and many other enemies in the land of Israel, and he saw deliverance by the hand of God every time. And so he could easily say, yes, Yahweh is strong and mighty. He's mighty in battle. I've seen it with my own eyes. But I think this also harkens back to what we began the service with, and that was speaking about the Exodus and Moses. And that there, as the signature event for all the people of Israel, that Yahweh is a mighty warrior, that he can defeat any who stand in his way, that even the mightiest nation in the world at that time cannot stand before Yahweh. He is strong and mighty. He is mighty in battle for all those who seek to defy him. David could boldly declare that Yahweh was a victorious warrior. And he then repeats this in verses 9 and 10. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. David replies here a little bit differently than he said previous. Did you catch that? Verse 8, he says he's strong and mighty and mighty in battle. Here in verse 10, he says he's Yahweh of hosts. He is the king of glory. Yahweh of hosts referring to the fact that he is the commander of the armies of heaven. The host, referring to the heavenly hosts that he has at his disposal. 
And the point of all these descriptions, friends, is to show that Yahweh is in a class all by himself. He is supreme. He, indeed, has the highest place. He's unparalleled in his strength and might. There's no being in the universe that compares to him in glory. There are none that can oppose him and, and win. He is the victorious warrior every time. But friends, as we are gathered here today in the 21st century on this side of the cross, we have an even greater testimony to the might and victory of the Lord. As we look upon redemptive history, we don't just see God saving Israel in the Exodus, although we do. We don't just see David being saved by the Lord in his battles, although we do. But we see Jesus being victorious at the cross. Jesus has shown himself to be the mighty king of glory, the unparalleled one. And even though his enemies put him on the cross and it looked before the world that Jesus had been defeated, it was there upon that cross that he accomplished the ultimate victory. It was there that he accomplished victory over sin and Satan and death. And so, we as the worshiping community today can say, yes, Yahweh is mighty and strong. He defeated Satan. He crushed death. He rose victorious. He is mighty in battle. And so church, this must spur our praise as it did David in that day. The gospel, the fact that what Jesus accomplished his death, burial, and resurrection must cause us to worship in, in unrestrained passion. We live in a world that has rejected Yahweh, that looks at this declaration of who the Lord is and scoffs at it. But we, by God's grace, have had our eyes opened. We know the truth. And so we worship in great adoration that he would change our hearts, that we might know him. We can praise the King of glory because we've been changed by the King of glory. Let me just say, if you are here this morning and you have not submitted your life to Jesus Christ, that you know that you are not trusting Jesus, that you are living life your own way, you need to hear the truth that Jesus Christ is the King of glory. He right now is seated at the right hand of the Father, but he will return to earth as a warrior to defeat all those who have rejected him. And when he does return as the mighty warrior, it will be terrifying. John writes for us in Revelation 19 what that scene looks like. He says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. 
and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. As I said, this, when Jesus returns in his wrath as a mighty warrior, it will be terrifying. This is a wrath that is coming upon all those who reject Christ today. But know that this Jesus has given himself as a sacrifice for sin so that all people today can look upon him, confess him as Lord, and find forgiveness that they might be accepted before the Lord. You can escape this judgment by simply calling out and trusting in Jesus, by repenting of your sin and believing that Jesus is indeed the only way to be saved. Jesus is the King of glory. And he will not allow the people of this earth to continue in rebellion forever. He owns this earth. He owns you. And he calls you today to submit to him. And so the question is, will you bow before the king of glory today or face his wrath when he returns? Church, we need to make sure we keep our gaze set upon the Lord. In the light of all that's going on around us and all that we are called to do in this day and age that we remember not primarily who is against us, but who is among us. That we remember that it is God Almighty who has saved us, transformed us, and fights our battles for us. Let us keep our gaze upon the King. Let us seek His face. Let us pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And may God produce this in us that we might be a holy people for our own praise? No all for his glory. Amen? Let's pray. O sovereign Lord, we come humbly before you, and as this psalm declares, we confess your sovereignty over us. This earth belongs to you, for you created it. We pray, Lord, that you would please write these truths of this psalm upon our hearts, that we would indeed see the towering stature of the unseen king. We would live our lives in his shadow, that we would submit ourselves to his word and to his law, and that in the midst of a world that has grown chaotic with the rebellion and sin, that we would be steadied and true as we seek the face of the God of Jacob. Oh God, produce this in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.